to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 44, please. You will need uh, a copy of that before you in your electronic version or the pew Bible, your own hard copy Bible. I only have half of the verses there on the outline. One of the key themes of the book of Genesis is the promise to send a second Adam, to send the Savior. The promise to send the seed from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. We encounter that promise in Genesis chapter 3, and it's really been fueling um, all of these activities up and through this point, looking for the anointed one to come, to undo what the first Adam did. The anointed one means Messiah, and Messiah means Christ, looking for the Christ to come. And this is what uh, Genesis introduces, and this is the underlying theme that drives forward from Genesis throughout the whole Bible. The last several chapters, from chapter 37 onward, we have been looking at a central figure who is Joseph. It's true that Joseph has been uh, in the forefront of these narratives. We can see him as being the key figure. But underlying, there actually is another person that the Lord is bringing to the forefront to fulfill the promise of bringing the Messiah. We would think, in our design, well, it's got to be Joseph. But in God's wisdom, and as is usual, he takes that which we don't expect And he makes it the central theme to show us his grace, to remind us of his great provision, even despite how sinful we are. Joseph has been a solid figure, consistent, faithful, probably the most faithful figure, maybe in the Bible, other than Jesus. He's been a picture of Christ throughout this narrative. But the person who God will actually bring the Messiah from is not Joseph at all. Jesus will not come from the tribes of Joseph, but rather from the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ is the ultimate figure of Scripture, and Judah will be the perpetuator of that line in Genesis. And we see this clearly set up in chapter 44. Now we understand why chapter 38 was there. You remember Judah and Tamar, that episode. We see a total transformation worked by the Lord and His grace in the person of Judah, and it reaches a certain climactic point here in Genesis 44. We left off in chapter 43 with Joseph and his brothers enjoying a great feast, a gracious feast that showed much growth on the part of the brothers. They were not jealous of Benjamin getting five times as much as they were. The next morning they rose, feeling blessed and on their way, all that favor from the prime minister, and they head off, and now we pick up and chapter 44, telling us how this happens in the aftermath. Hear God's holy word. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? 
Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servants speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asks asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young, bro- young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, As soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boys, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please... Let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. 
for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we come asking for your help to understand and to apply your word. We're so grateful that we have this written guidance from you, but we depend on the ministry of your Holy Spirit. That is the only way that it can have its intended transformational effect upon us. We desire to grow to be more like our Savior, so please give us aid this hour. Through Christ, I make this appeal for your illumination. Amen. I hope that as you've been tracking with me, you are catching the gravity of what we have just read. I know that typically when you think of the drama level of the story, it's when in chapter 45, Joseph reveals himself that we might think of the high point. But in the redemptive sense of it, this is the high point when we see true gospel transformation in some awful people. Now, all of us should find great encouragement from what happens in the lives of the brothers, and especially in the life of Judah, who we see transformed here after 20 plus years of God working on him. The brothers of the early chapters of Genesis 36 are not the same brothers of chapter 44. Most prominently, the Judah of the Judah and Tamar episode back in the late chapters of chapter 30. This is not the same man who we are now reading of in chapter 44. What could be more practical than to have this encouragement that whatever sins you have committed, whatever sins I have committed, whatever is in my past, in your past, whatever attempts to weigh you down over and over again, you can realize that God never stops working on you as his child. He doesn't leave these brothers who would have been easy to leave. He could have started the covenant anew with somebody else, could have taken Joseph's line. But he sticks with them, and he transforms them over two decades. God never stops working to transform us. He's doing it right now in your life with whatever you're dealing with, whatever's happening. Through this chapter, I want us to see two very simple things. One, how tests and trials are a key way in which he works this change in us, as we see with the brothers. But also, I want us to recognize what is the hallmark of someone who's been changed? How would we know a person's been changed by the gospel? We see that in the person of Judah and by extension, collectively the brothers as well. Let's approach the passage that way as we see some of the details emerge. First of all, I want you to notice how God has been using tests, trials to bring the brothers to full repentance and faith. Now, to this point, Joseph's been quite a Christ figure. In these tests, he's more like God the Father setting up the circumstances to mold the brothers in a certain direction, to test them, if you will. Test to see if they've been transformed and to test them for further transformation. Now, before we look at that, I want to mention to you that tests and trials aren't the only way God works change in his children. So just so you know, you can have episodes in your life that don't experience those kinds of tests and trials. They may seem like few, but they're probably more than we imagine. Well, how does he work change in us otherwise? Same way he was working change in the brothers, he works it in our lives as well. First and foremost, primary way is his word. By revealing his will in this fallen world through the Holy Spirit's work with the word and in our hearts, we can understand what is true. 
And God guides us and directs us first and foremost with a declaration of how our sins could be forgiven in Christ. We learn the gospel by his proclamation. And the spirit binds it to us and we trust in Christ. We, we have life in him. So his word and his spirit, and his spirit works conviction, works encouragement, works uh, to attest to our being sons and daughters. We know because God gives us a sense of our adoption. So the spirit of God working change in you through his word, working change. Then he gives us tools, um, reminders that have special application because he ties himself to them in unusual ways. That's, of course, the preaching of the word as we gather for corporate worship. We change through this time together. It's a bit of a high point for us as a community to come together like this. But other times of fellowship, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper regularly, we're reminded by God's special reminder that comes with his spirit in a way that's unusual, different from other ways, and we're once again assured of the sureness of our salvation in Christ. And every time we see a baptism, not only is that baptism applied to the person who's receiving it, the whole community is reminded of what God has said about the promise of Christ applied to us and signified and made true, again, afresh to us. Multiple ways he gives works change in our lives. He also changes us when we pray to him. When we pause and just communicate with the Lord and ask him for things, praise him for things, thank him for things, ask, we try to intercede for other people. We don't think of prayer this way often. Too many people think prayer changes God's mind. Prayer changes us as we pray over and over for something. Sometimes the Lord will mold our prayers into a different direction. He changes us through prayer. But there's another way in which the Lord changes us, and that's where our focus is in this passage. Through tests and trials and challenges. It causes us to face our weaknesses. causes us to face our sins, sins we maybe haven't confessed. It calls us to repentance, to turn from that and turn to God. It calls us to faith, to rest and trust and depend upon him. That's the purpose of tests and trials. This is what we see exemplified in the lives of the brothers. God, through Joseph, is working tests. And in chapter 44, it reaches the most pressuresome point of the test. This is the most pointed of all the things that Joseph is orchestrating. Let's look there at verse 1. Joseph commands the steward of his house, this right-hand man of his, fill the men's sacks with food, load them up with as much as they can carry, and put their money back, just like he did the first time. But put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, of Benjamin, very pointed by Joseph, as is everything he's done so far. Now, a couple points to make. The silver cup was representative of his high-standing place, in Pharaoh's court, of course, the prime minister. And it's true, the pagans would use that cup to identify themselves, and they would also use it for prayers of incantation and divination to determine the future. Um, people knew that to be true of that cup. It would be, be identified with that person. So to steal that cup would be so brash. Now, we shouldn't get caught up in Joseph's belief of that. He's just presenting himself as a pagan ruler. He's playing the part. He's not ready to give up his identity as Joseph yet. And so he puts this cup, or has this cup, placed in Benjamin's bag. Another thing that we must notice. You remember what the brothers got in exchange for Joseph when they sold him to the Ishmaelites? Silver. Knowing Joseph, it wouldn't surprise me at all that he meant for there to be symbolism that I'm going to put this silver in for Benjamin now. And so this 
starts to unfold just as he is orchestrating. Verse 3, as soon as it was light, they were sent away with their donkeys. They were merry from the party the night before, thinking very highly of themselves. Um, here they are in the favor of the prime minister, and everyone is, just couldn't be happier. It would be like the day after summer camp. They just couldn't be happier. And as they're going back, Joseph decides to send his steward to work his plan. They're only a short distance from the city. The steward goes up, just as he says, and he confronts them. How have you done this evil thing? Why does my Lord speak this way, they respond. They can't understand why they're being accused. They are so sure that they have not done this, that none of them, we just had this beautiful party with the prime minister. Why on earth would we do something so silly, so dumb, as to steal his cup? Why would we What would possess us? They're so sure that they spoke with their usual rashness. Far be it from your servants to do such a thing, verse 7. The money that we found in the sacks before, we brought it back. Why would we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? This makes no sense. And then what they say in verse 9. This is the brothers that we know. Whatever one of these uh, servants are found, that person's going to die. Now, they don't think anybody did it, so they don't assume this is going to ever happen. And then, in addition to that, not only can you kill him, we'll all be your slaves. That's what will happen. That's how sure we are that we're innocent. So they all lower their bags right quick, verse 12, and they started emptying, starting with the oldest down to the youngest. And get to Benjamin's sack. Everyone's sure it's not Benjamin. And there it is, the cup in Benjamin's sack. And you could just feel their, their stomachs drop out. And they all together tear their clothes. Every man loaded their donkey back up, knowing they had to go back and face Joseph. Joseph was interested in how they related to Benjamin. Let's not lose this. That's his main point. To find out if they're really transformed, how would they deal with the favored son now when their life was on the line? Would they sell him out like they did him? Because they had all the chance in the world to do it. How would they deal with this? Well, we already know. Verse 13 shows something different. They all, they all grieved when they realized that they were all in trouble. It wasn't pointed at Benjamin. They just realized that something was up and it wasn't just the steward or Joseph. God himself was working something here and they grieved over the discipline they were under. Now, this is far different from the brothers of old. You remember when the brothers came back and reported the lie that Joseph had been eaten by wild animals. You would think everybody would go into a time of grieving. What happened? Only Jacob tore his robe. They knew they, they, they weren't about to grieve before the Lord. Here, all of them collectively recognize what's happening and they see they should all grieve. The brothers have changed. Still more to be shown. But this is a different lot. Verse 14. When, and now notice the shift. Verse 14 is very key. Moses wants us to know who the leader is now. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. Because Judah hasn't spoken yet particularly, specifically. Joseph was still there, and notice what happens in verse 14. Here it is. They all fell before him. The dream, the dream that Joseph had was realized. This is the third time they fell before him, but the first time all of them fell before him, just as his dream had forecasted. And Joseph says to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination, he's keeping up the ruse. Now Judah speaks. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? Here's a key phrase, shows a different different set of brothers. 
So the test is working. Judah says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. He doesn't say your steward caught us. He knows they didn't steal the cup. This is God doing this. Whatever happened the first time it was God, when their money was returned, and now it's God again, and we cannot escape the disciplining hand of God, and we must accept that we are guilty. Not guilty of taking the cup, but guilty of what they did to their brother those many years ago. And finally, their payment would be to be slaves of the prime minister of Egypt. So be it. That must be God's will. Judah speaks for all of them in this way. He accepts the blame for what has been done. He does not try to make excuses. He does not equivocate. He doesn't try to wrestle about the cup. He knows they're guilty men before God. But what does Joseph do after Judah offers all of them as slaves? Far be it for me, Joseph says. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found, he'll be my slave. Joseph, tightening it up even more to really show where their heart is on this. All his tests have served a purpose, but now it just comes down in a pointed way and it's going to squeeze Judah up into the limelight. It's not going to be Simeon or Reuben. They've been disqualified. Judah should be though. What kind of a life did that guy live? But there's been gospel transformation in his life and Judah realizes that it's his time to manifest what they know to be true. And he exemplifies what I would say is the hallmark of someone who's been transformed by the gospel. The hallmark of that is to become selfless. Before the gospel, we are naturally selfish, self-promoting, and self-preserving. We still battle with that on the other side of trusting Christ. But now in Christ, we actually have an opportunity to mirror what our Savior has done. Give himself for us. And Judah starts to show that kind of transformation. So foreign to anything we've seen from them before. Let's look at verse 18 and see this hallmark of gospel transformation. Verse 18 begins one of the most epic speeches in the whole Bible. Um, It's the longest speech in the book of Genesis. Judah's gospel transformation on full display in this diatribe for the ages. Verse 18. Judah went up to him and said, he goes forward and speaks to Joseph. Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. The salutation to begin what's going to come. Now he's going to recount the whole situation so Joseph, who he doesn't know is Joseph, so the prime minister can know why it is they cannot leave Benjamin back. That can't happen. If you recall, he says to Joseph, verse 19, you asked us if we had a father or a brother. We said to you, we have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother's dead. There there were two, but now there's this one. And he's alone left, he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Now I want to pause for a moment and imagine you're Judah and the other brothers. The way Jacob spoke in the way Judah speaks about Jacob, we know what they grew up with. They grew up with a father who said that he really had two kids. He had Benjamin and Joseph born to his wife, Rachel. The others were not his first choices. That's the fact of how they, it doesn't excuse what they did or how they were, but that's the truth of the matter. And this is what makes Jacob so wrapped up in the welfare of Benjamin. And Judah doesn't dispute that or say how hurt he is about it. He recognizes it's true of his father. It's just what it is. And his father can't take another hit on this. And that in itself is Judah rising above his background. That he could certainly claim, I was mistreated. 
but he steals with the he deals with the situation as it is and speaks of Judah and or speaks of Benjamin in this way. He continues to tell the story. And by the way, also, this is the first time Joseph would be hearing what his father's reaction was when he disappeared. For 22 plus years, he hasn't known. What did his father think? Did his father try to come and find him? He, all these questions he doesn't know. His father was a wrecked man after he lost Joseph. And so all the emotion that Joseph is feeling as it's being said to him, and he's trying to keep his identity hidden, and he's hearing for the first time how wrecked his father was over this. Verse 21, then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. So when we were there, we couldn't come back. We needed more food. We couldn't come back. Finally, our father says, hey, go get us some food. We said, we can't go. We told you. We got to bring Benjamin. That's verse 26. We can't show our face to that guy if we don't bring Benjamin with us. Finally, because they were so desperate, verse 27, your servant, my father said, you know that my wife bore me two sons. There it is. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. Joseph didn't know that's what they told him, that he had been torn to pieces. They had no idea. For all he knew, they convinced the father that it was a good idea to sell him. I mean, he doesn't know. Your mind will play tricks after years and years and years of no answers. If you take this one also from me, verse 29, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Candlish, the great commentator, says, unwittingly, Judah sends a shaft into Joseph's bosom as he represents his father bewailing his beloved Rachel and her two sons, one already lost and the other about to be torn away. My wife bore two sons, verse 27. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. It's hard sometimes to imagine, you know, what, what was it for Joseph to just be so welled up that he has to run out and cry? I think you can sense it here. So much is coming at him as he's working this plan. But now we see the fullness of the gospel transformation in the life of Judah. Judah continues in verse 30. Therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then his, his life is bound up in the boy's. My, my dad's so close to Benjamin, he die if Benjamin's gone. As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. And this is where the shift occurs. For your servant, Judah says, became a pledge. I, Judah, became a pledge for Benjamin to my father. I said to him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. He is bound with me. I, I, he is mine. He is my responsibility. The Father has given him to me to protect, to keep. Now verse 33. Now therefore, in light of what the Father has done in giving him to me, please let your servant remain. Let me stay instead so that the boy can go free. Let me be his substitute so that the boy could go free. For how can I go back to my father, verse 34, if the boy is not with me? I have to do what I promised my father I would do. I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Here they are tempted, once again, to betray their favored brother for their own skin. In this time, under Judah's leadership, they uniformly refuse and Judah himself offers himself as a substitute for his commitment to the Father. 
Jesus says in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Judah's willingness to be his brother's substitute in commitment to his father is a foreshadowing of his greater son, Jesus Christ. By transformation, we're talking about a true spiritual and personal change. By transformation, we're talking about the supernatural work of God in the lives of these men to modify their fundamentally flawed and sinful nature, to change them into people who could look at others as more important than themselves in this moment. Kent Hughes said, well, we witness a life-altering transformation of the brothers that will variously involve conscience, repentance, enlarged sympathies, intercession, sacrifice, and substitution, all wrapped in a growing brotherly love that speaks of Christ. When we speak of gospel transformation or change, we're referring to the biblical doctrine of sanctification. Sanctus meaning holy, the process of being made holy. That's all it means. It's the idea that God never stops working once he calls you to faith in him. He never stops working to hone you, to hone us, to transform us. And nothing you've done in the past hinders him from doing that work in the present and into the future. Our larger catechism, which we don't read as much because it's longer, it has a really good explanation of sanctification. Tell me that it doesn't resemble what you see in the brothers, what we've been going through watching them over these weeks together. Sanctification is a work of God's grace, so it's something he works to do. It's ongoing. Whereby they whom God has before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy, he's going to do the work that he's begun because he's called us from eternity past, they're in time through the powerful operation of his spirit applying the death and resurrection of Christ unto them renewed in their whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance unto life in all the other saving graces put into their hearts. And those graces so stirred up, increased even, and strengthened as they more and more, the person who's having this work being done, they more and more die into sin and rise unto newness of life. That is exactly the story of what we've seen unfold in their lives and in Judah's life especially. Paul says, in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You say, yeah, but I'm still sinning. The fact that you are grieving your sin shows you're a new creation. You would not grieve your sin if you were not. So don't let grief over sin or conviction over sin make you lose assurance. It should make you gain assurance, and he's going to keep doing the work. I want to conclude by pointing out a phrase that really tells the fullness of this story, both in this passage and what we've been seeing all through Genesis, the way the Lord has been working through his people. The phrase comes in verse 15. It's subtle, but it's not so subtle when you think of how it occurs in other places. In verse 15, after knowing the brothers or thinking the brothers stole the cup, Joseph says, what deed is this that you have done? What deed is this that you have done? Do you remember that kind of a question being asked in Genesis before? What deed is this that you have done? Well, the first time we read something like this is right after the fall, right after sin has entered. And it says in Genesis 3, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this 
that you have done. And of course, the woman says, the serpent tricked me. And the husband already said, it's the woman. They already were making excuses for their sin. What is this that you have done? That's their answer. Excuses. Equivocation. Denial. Later, not too much later, one chapter, God says to Cain after he killed Abel, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Cain, am I my brother's keeper? Come on, this isn't my responsibility. That's his answer to that profound, what have you done? You remember when it comes again, it's in chapter 12. Pharaoh says to Abram, who lies about Sarah, saying it's his sister, just to save himself, and this brings plagues upon Egypt. And Pharaoh says in chapter 12, Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Abram, I was scared of you. I was scared of you. I, I lied because I was trying to cover my own tracks, cover my own self. That's why. Makes up excuses for why I brought this upon him. The same thing happens with Abimelech a little bit later. Abram does the same thing. Abraham at that time. In chapter 20, Abimelech calls to Abraham and said, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you would bring this upon me and my kingdom, this great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. The same answer, Abraham says. I lied because I was covering my own self. His son Isaac learns from his father, and the same thing happens, probably with a different Abimelech. It's a name that's more or less dynastic. Multiple people. I like Pharaoh. Abimelech says to Isaac in chapter 26 of Genesis, what is this that you have done lying about Rebekah? One might have easily lain with your wife because of your lie, and you would have brought guilt upon us. What have you done to us? Jacob, after getting tricked by Laban, he's so mad, so mad at how Laban tricked him. In the morning, behold, it was Leah instead of Rachel. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why have you deceived me? Laban's like, it's not our custom. It may be your custom, but this is ours. Then Jacob tricks Laban to get away from him with his family. Laban says to Jacob, and Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? No answer. He snuck away. Didn't do it honorably. Snuck away. Equivocating, denials, excuses. That's all we hear when this question comes up. What have you done? Finally, chapter 44. Joseph says to them, What deed is this that you have done? And Judah doesn't say we didn't do anything. We're innocent. We're, we, it was a custom. It was this. It was that. Equivocation. Excuses. Denials. Lies. Steering another, he doesn't say any of that. What shall I say to my Lord, he says. What shall we speak? This is, the, this is gospel transformation. When you can just say truthfully, this is my sin. But I know the Savior who's hearing the sin, I confess, is greater than it. So I'm just going to say what it is. Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of us brothers. No equivocation. Behold, we are your slaves now. That's the price. And it's worth it. We, we deserve to do this. Both we and he, Benjamin too, whose cup is found, we are your slaves. And then verse 33, to the answer or to the question, what deed have you done? Please let me remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. 
For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What a difference in answering that question now in chapter 44. Joseph's test revealed a genuine transformation. And the encouragement to all of us is that God will never, ever, ever stop working that transformation in you. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, do your work of transformation in each of us, but please be gentle. By your Holy Spirit, compel us to present ourselves as living sacrifices to you. Instead of us being conformed to this world, please continue to transform us by the renewal of our minds so that we might walk according to your will. I pray this for the sake of the glory of Jesus, our Savior, the Anointed One, the Seed who came and crushed the serpent's head. Amen. Let's respond by